This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravipudi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. Rahul is off today. He's actually closing his Brazilian jiu-jitsu trial, and uh, we'll be interested to hear how that turns out at the next uh, episode. So I am thrilled today to have as our guest, Randy Kennard. Randy is a trial lawyer from Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Randy. Oh, Ben, thank you. Good morning up there in Maine. So I love having a friend in Nashville. And when uh, my wife and I were celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary a couple years ago now, you were kind enough to help us out with some recommendations for your great city. It must be a, a fun place to live and practice law. Oh, it's a great city. It's uh, growing, which makes traffic a challenge, Ben. But I was sorry I missed you when you and Sarah came through. I was out of town myself, and this is a great town, really growing, but it has uh, kind of a country feel also to it. That's never lost yet. So so it, we'll, we'll get into this, but you had to eventually become a trial plaintiff trial lawyer when your uh, country music career didn't take off, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, I can't carry the tune in the bucket, you know. I'm horrible. And what What is that Grand Old Opry? Can you explain that to me? I don't, I don't get that. Well, the Grand Old Opry is kind of like its name. It's the Grand Old Opry, but it's country music. It started a long time ago in a place called the Ryman Auditorium downtown. And most of the big shows are done somewhere else uh, in, in a larger venue. But the Ryman still attracts people, entertainers, country music singers. And it's an old church converted to this uh, auditorium. It's, it's historic. And if anybody listening comes to Nashville, you ought to take a tour through there and maybe even see a show in there. I, I, we actually saw uh, Garth Brooks there at the Ryman, which I was, we were very lucky to stumble into those tickets because, yeah, uh, yeah apparently he had a show at the, uh, what's the big stadium there where the football team plays, the t uh, Titans? Oh, yeah, was, yeah, Titans Stadium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he the show got canceled because of a lightning storm, and then he ended up at that small venue later, so there were very few tickets available, but somehow we lucked into a couple. Yeah, they're probably not 2,000 seats in there, you know, somewhere around there, probably. Yeah. Did you grow up in Nashville? I did. I did. I grew up in Nashville, uh, and it was a pretty small county then, probably 50,000 people in Nashville proper back then. They're probably 700,000 now. And uh, yes, I did. So I went to public schools, never been to a private school in my life, and uh, that's that was me. My father was a restaurant owner, and uh, he had me working in the kitchen when I was 12, washing pots and pans, sweeping floors, mopping floors. And I said, Daddy, why are you making me do this? And he said, someday you'll figure out that, Randy. I went, okay, and I did. <laughs> Have you now figured it out? Oh, <laughs> yeah. He was teaching me the value of education. You went from uh, public school in, in Nashville to West Point. First of all, uh, that, that must have been 
I know how competitive the military academies are. How did you manage to get yourself into West Point uh, out of Nashville? Well, that's a good question. And I I loved West Point, the idea of going there. I used to watch a show on television called Men of West Point. And Clint Eastwood actually starred in his first role as a cadet. And these stories about cadets, their true stories, were just inspirational. And uh, I mean, they would do, I just watched these guys and went, boy, those are incredible guys. And it's a great place. And it's an honorable place. So I wanted to go there. And you have to be physically uh, in good shape, medically, obviously, and academically. I failed the first time, the whatever it was, the SATs. I didn't score high enough. So I went to college in Tennessee at a, a school called Tennessee Tech. I was going to be an engineer. And my congressman sent me a telegram and said, I've appointed you again. Better luck this time. And I really bore down on taking the test, passed, got in, and loved every day I was there, even when I screwed up and got punished severely for something. But I loved every every day what, I was what, there. What happened? It doesn't, you don't, it's hard to imagine that you would have done that. Well, when I was a freshman, also known as a plebe, because uh, plebeian is the lowest known form of life. So when I was a plebe, they didn't allow us to go home at Christmas. So I had a girlfriend bring me a six-pack of Budweiser onto the post, also known to Sabians as the campus. And I drank five cans of Budweiser one night and was so not used to drinking, I got just drunk as a skunk. I hid one of the cans in a in a bag in my closet and said, I'll save that for some other time. And then I forgot about it. And a month later, I came back from class in the morning, and there was a senior cadet sitting in my chair in the room, and my room had been destroyed with a inspection, and he was tossing this can of beer up and down in his hand. And he said, so I suppose this is yours, Kennard. And I said, oh, God, yes, it is. And I got in so much trouble because plebes don't do that. It was just a a really crazy offense. What is the punishment for uh, being found with one can of uh, Budweiser as a plebe? Two months confinement in your room, and meaning you could only go to the gym to exercise two hours a day, but you couldn't go anywhere. couldn't go to to football games or have dates or anything. And, uh, walked 44 hours in the area it's called where you march back and forth three hours on a Saturday while your classmates are up at the football game you can hear the cheering down you know you hear the cheering and you're walking back and forth with your stupid rifle and but the the worst part was the hazing from the upperclassmen they tried to run me out it didn't work (laughs) it was close it was close anyway that was my kind of quote worst offense so was the Vietnam War brewing in your in the backdrop during the time you were at West Point? Was that part of the, your consciousness that this was going to be something you would be moving to after graduation? It was always in the back of your mind that that's where you're going to go. You were going there. and So there was no doubt, no doubt about that? No, there was no doubt about it. And we were not in the highest combat at the time I was there, that came later when I was actually in Vietnam. Uh, But we would get reports about once a month, maybe more frequently, of another cadet graduate had been killed. And so, and they would announce that at at noon in the mess hall. And so it was a kind of a constant reminder, this is where you're going to go, and this is what you're going to do. And we were all training for combat, and 99% of my classmates went to Vietnam. So that really must have framed your mind. It wasn't theoretical. It was real. Was there an anxiety associated with that, or was was there more of a kind of eager anticipation that you were going to leave and you know go to combat? It's a story told a million, million times that uh, before men go to combat, 
they've got the hoorah. They're all excited. They think it's going to be something. It definitely turns out not to be. And your sense of patriotism is high. Then this is what I've trained to do. This is what I'm going to go do. Like all the great generals before me, you know, that's the kind of the thinking, but you don't, and they do not at that time. I don't know what to do now, but they did not train you for what are you going to feel like when somebody around you gets killed right in front of you? They don't train you. They didn't at that time. And so I lost a lot of dear friends. And one of them uh, was just, you know, my best friend. And I saw it all happen and they don't train you for that. And they didn't decompress you when you came back from Vietnam in those days. Ben, you know what they did? In those days, they would send one man in to replace another man. A unit would not go in at a time, except in the very early stages of that war. But by the time I went, 1968, by that time, just one man was going in. So you'd be, say, you'd be there and you finished your tour. It's time for Lieutenant Gideon to go home. And Kennard comes in to take your place. That creates a really crazy morale problem for the men that see this new guy coming in. Is he going to get me killed? What's going to happen? But when it's all over and you're a veteran and if you survive all this, and, and back then, if you went home in two days, you'd be greeted by your family at your airport at home with zero decompression. Ooh, bad thing. You know, they learned you cannot do that. You need decompression from all that. And I think now uh, they take maybe a month to decompress these guys. And uh, with, before you go back into normal life, that has to happen. So the consequence of that was there was a lot of uh, severe mental anguish, I guess you could say, and disorders in a lot of people. And that's sort of the syndrome you people have heard about. I got lucky and uh, came out okay eventually, but I was a mess at the start when I came back. But that's a different long story. So you you served in the, the Airborne and, and were in Vietnam in 1968 and 1969 and did uh, multiple tours, right? Yeah, I did two tours. That's right. And uh, I was reading a, a story about you in a, a law, law journal that recounted an event where you were, it was, I think, during your second tour when you were trying to cross a concrete bridge with a Jeep and ended up uh, sucked into a, a pipe that uh, was draining water out of the bridge. Can you explain what happened with that? That sounds like one of the most, uh, it sounds like a movie as I re read about it. Well, it was the monsoon, Ben, and my driver was taking me. I was a captain by then with uh, one month to go before I go home. And it was a concrete bridge with no sides. But the water was two and a half feet above the surface of the bridge. And this river is flowing fast. And I said, I'm going to get out of the Jeep and walk you over so you don't go off the side. And I'm walking over the top of the bridge and I see a hole, it's not a hole, but a, a swirl, a little swirl in the water. And I thought that must be a hole in the bridge where a chunk of the bridge has come out. And I put my foot in the hole to see what I thought was a hole to see how deep it was. And did the Jeep have to move further left? And actually I didn't know it because you couldn't see the bridge, but I was at the right edge of the bridge and what that was right below that swirl three feet down was the opening of a pipe. And it was, uh, in hindsight, the Venturi principle where all that water is forced through the pipe. I was at the mouth of the pipe and it sucked me into that pipe. Boom. And I, I mean, I mean, I was just suddenly inside a pipe and it was pitch black. Although it was about noon, it was raining and suddenly I'm inside this pipe and I know exactly where I am because when the river level was down and I could go over the bridge, I saw this pipe and I knew at the other end, the opposite end, the far end, there were concrete reinforcing rods coming out of the pipe that curled inward towards each other. 
making the opening down there, oh, maybe a foot and a half wide. And I'm thinking, I've got to get back out where I just came in because I can get stuck at the other end and drown down there. I got to get out. And I tried my best to pull myself out, but the current was so strong, I, I couldn't make it. So I'm fighting and struggling that all the time underneath the water. And I eventually decide the only thing I can do is try to make myself as small as possible and hope I get through the other end and pray there's no log in there to block me when I come down. <clears throat> and so I let go and made myself a pencil inside that pipe. And I'm rattling along inside the pipe and then upside down, suddenly I'm in a different sensation, a different setting, which was now I'm in the river. And I knew I was in the river because I'm upside down and it's like somebody shined a bright light down and boom. So I know I'm through the pipe, but I'm thinking now I'm on the bottom of this river, 20 feet to the surface and the current is so strong. I've been down there a while and I'm thinking now I'm going to drown down here. And I heard a voice, man. I don't know if I don't, I've never told you this, but I heard a voice. I'm thinking I'm going to die now. And I heard a voice that said, not today, Randy. And I went, whoa. And I relaxed. And I believe my either my guardian angel or my great maker was talking to me. I never heard anything like that before or since. And I relaxed and didn't fight the current, went downstream 100 yards and popped up. <laughs> whoa. And uh, made it. So... Wow. That experience uh, has made me a believer in times of doubt these days. I still uh, think of that event. I'm sure it'll stick with me the rest of my life. And so in a way, I'm very grateful for that experience. It's a, uh, you know, that was a miracle to me anyway. And what, what's, what's incredible about that is that uh, you've paid that back now over and over through the people that you've represented and helped in your career. And maybe that was the plan. Absolutely. Like, you know, you hope to think the message was, and you don't want to feel egotistical about this or anything, but you hope the message was there's more for you to do. And so that's what you hope the message is. Anyway, and what, it was kind of what takeaway, yeah. not only the incredible service you provided to the country, but also the the way you tell your story, your incredible storyteller. Is that, have you always been such a good storyteller? Is that something you've, a skill you've developed over your career? Oh, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know. I guess. Uh, Do you like storytelling? Yeah. I grew up in the age when there was a lot of radio in my house and you'd listen to shows on the radio and I mean, stories like uh, the squeaking door. The younger people listening to this won't know what the squeaking door was, but it was a great mystery show and a little scary thing. And it was all radio. And they had to paint the picture in words of what was happening. And that may be where I began to uh, understand the importance of painting a picture for people uh, not, not just with the use of charts and PowerPoint, but with your, with your word or your story. And it was, a, I never even thought about that, Ben. That's a great question. So now you, you come back from the Vietnam war, you, you have to make that difficult transition. And at some point you go to law school and you embark on this career as a trial lawyer. Can you uh, take us through that, that part of your journey? Sure. I wondered what is it I can do with the alleged skills I have from combat? What can I do as a career and what can I do to help people out? And the combination of combat skills and wanting to help people, this seemed like a good place to go and do uh, trial work. I love trials. I love trying a case. It's uh, as we all know, it's like combat in a way. The great news is nobody dies, usually, though a few, a few have. Uh, but nobody's going to die. I do know of litigants who died during 
the case from stress, not my own clients, but, uh, and the challenge of trying a case is enormous. You want to uh, anticipate everything the other side's going to do. So I think about every possible way my opponent could hurt my client's case. Every possible way. I imagine it. I counter it. And I all the time try to keep the case simple. And these, uh, I, I think it, for me personally, a lot of this came from combat experience and military training. But there's a book the readers might have read, Sun Tzu's book, Sun Tzu, S-U-N-T-Z-U, The Art of, Art of War, Chinese Warrior, I don't know, 2,300 years ago. The principles of war and combat, tactics, strategy are in that book that apply to businesses and, I think, most of all, uh, to trial work. Great book to read. But anyway, I, I made that transition, wanted to be a lawyer, went to law school and came out, hung my own shingle out and uh, started to work. What, what do you think are the uh, kind of foundational principles that you learned in your military and, and combat uh, service career that you have applied to your uh, work as a trial lawyer? And I guess uh, along with that, Obviously, there's a lot of stress that goes with the uh, job of, of trying cases and representing clients. But is it because you've had that background of being in extremely stressful situations where the stakes are even higher, life and death, does that make it easier to tolerate uh, the stress associated with trial work, do you think? It, do it does. It does. There's a different level of anxiety waiting for a helicopter to pick you up to be put into a hot LZ any zone than there is from taking a briefcase downtown on the start of the morning trial. Those are different feelings, but they both involve anxiety. Combat, the anxiety was enormously high and the adrenaline is you think going downtown and, you know, going into the courtroom to pick a jury is high. That adrenaline is high, but it's nothing like this is the day I could die. <laughs> so they're not, they're not close, but it's, it's, it's still an awful feeling. <clears throat> and what I learned a lot in uh, getting ready for combat was preparation, training, Trial lawyers have to study somehow or another. Excuse me. Like good podcasts like this. Listen to those on the road. Uh, read, read, study what other people have done. Try some little cases. Uh, don't be afraid to try them and get, get prepared for the good big case when it comes along and it will. So preparation and training are huge. Discipline is important uh, when things go bad as they always will in a case. The mission's first. It's like in combat when somebody goes down, you have to keep going. So <clears throat> bad things are going to happen in a case. You got to keep plugging along. Keep the morale going. Keep your people up. And then things probably will turn again in your favor if you've got the right case. But uh, so that's, those are good things. Persistence. If you're getting killed in an examination, suppose some witness is killing you. You feel like that guy's killing me. Uh, keep a pleasant look on your face. Like uh, he's not bothering me. This is nothing. And just keep going. Is that helpful, Ben? Extremely helpful. <laughs> So would you, you started, did you start uh, as, a, as a lawyer doing plaintiff's cases? How did you, and I know you have your own firm. Did you uh, start with your own firm at the outset or how did you get into the uh, world of plaintiff's trial work? I had zero cases when I started. And I went around and asked all federal judges, please appoint me to the defense of any criminal 
uh, you want to. I want to try cases. I don't even care if I get paid, but, uh, you know, it'd be nice to get a little money. I wanted trial experience, and that's a good way to get it. Uh, I don't know to what extent they allow that anymore, but I, don't, I did something else more important than that, which I know lawyers can do today, young lawyers can do. I went around to other experienced lawyers and said, I went to their office, introduced myself, and said, send me your trash. <laughs> you, you do not want to go try a case. Send me your trash. I know you've got them, and I'll try them. And then lawyers started sending me their trash, and I'd go try, and I'd lose. <laughs> I'd lose. But I was learning. I was learning. And, you know, they weren't big cases, obviously, or nobody would have sent them to me. And little car wrecks and things like that. And then in a, there was, oh, maybe after about three years of practicing, I started to hit some uh, verdicts that nobody expected, me, including me, nobody expected my side to win. And then I was learning more. And then I started getting some pretty nice verdicts. And so the word went out around town, which was a fairly small legal community at the time. Hey, this guy Kennard, uh, it seems to be pretty good. And they send me more cases. And that's how it all started really was going around and telling people, I'll try your trash. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by Law Pods. Law Pods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. I think that if someone was eager and uh, willing to do that today, that, that model could still work. I mean, we I see think cases so. in our office that we don't want. And if somebody came in and said, we're willing to take those cases and try them, uh, we'd hand them off in a second. And you probably have cases like that too now. And nobody ever knocks on my door and says, give me your trash. I have to be right now looking for a lawyer to take some cases that have turned out to be, well, not awful, but uh, I do not want to go try them. I'll put it that way. So can you talk about some of the... Uh, maybe the early uh, most significant experiences you had, whether it's a particular case or moment where you felt like you just, you know, something clicked into place and you kind of got it and you realized, Oh, I'm pretty good at this. And, um, and I also, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this work. I like doing this uh, job. All the cases easy to remember. It's about George Brown George Brown was a black man who came to me and I mentioned his race because it's important in this case. He came to me with uh, two days to go on the statute of limitations on a medical malpractice case in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. Lawrenceburg, Tennessee is right next door to the home of the KKK. And George said, I've been to five lawyers and they've all turned me down. Will you take my case? And I said, George, you only have two days left. I'll file it for you. And that was back in the day when you could file a medical malpractice case with no review by anybody except you. And I said, I'll save the time. And I filed it against uh, a surgeon and an internist in this small town of three doctors. They only had three doctors. Well, can I just ask, why did you agree to take that case in a uh, KKK-controlled uh, community with two days left on the statute of limitations? Was there something about the client or the case that, um, that drew you in? I loved the client, loved his story, and I didn't care where I was going. What was the backstory? The story is George was in a bar in uh, Lawrenceburg. And at midnight, he got in a fight with a 
another guy that had been drinking too much. Both of them had. George won the fight. The bad guy went out into the parking lot, got a shotgun, and came back in the bar and shot George in the lower part of his right leg just for meanness. Put 110 pellets in his leg. They took George to the hospital, and for five days, they let him lay in the hospital. And, and then the surgeon on the last day said, George, we're going to send you to Vanderbilt for some blood vessel work. We think you need some blood vessel work. And they sent him over, and, and he goes through the ER, and an orthopod by the name of John Bruno meets him in the ER and says, George, we're going to have to cut your leg off. You have gangrene all through it. If we don't cut it off, you're going to die. Those were the facts. And I said, that's not right in anybody's book. That's just not right. And so I sued those guys and uh, had one expert. We'd go to court, no offer, of course. We'd go to court. And a lot of the guys that uh, sent me cases, you know, you'd meet back in those days, you'd meet for lunch and talk about cases. And they said, Randy, you are really wasting your time. You actually think you're going to win that case? against two white doctors in that town, yeah, you're wasting your time and your money. And I said, well, I'm not going to have to spend much money. I only have one expert. I don't mind wasting my time. And we went and the judge said, we're going to try this case in two days. I don't care how late we work at night. We'll be over Tuesday and I've got to go to the next county. So the jury comes in, 50 uh, people in the panel and they're all white. And there's a spittoon on each end of the jury box. Men in overalls, ladies in paisley dresses. I'm talking country, country, country. This is a long time ago. And I had all these fancy notes uh, prepared for Vordier, all these great questions. I'd been to seminars. And I got up and said one thing to the jury, the 12 in the box. I said, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, my client is the only black person in this building. A moment ago, he leaned over and asked me, do you think a black man can get a fair trial in this county? And I said, George, I don't know, but I'm going to ask him in just a minute. Let me see a show of hands of anybody who can't give a black man in this county a fair trial. Nobody raised their hand. And I looked at the judge. I said, your honor, this jury is acceptable. And I sat down. With hindsight, that communicated to the jury is more going on here than we might think. There's some bias against George Brown. Now, let's see what the evidence is. And I think I got them. And that was the only thing I asked. And at 10 o'clock at night on Tuesday, George Brown won his case. And he didn't get much, $50,000 is all they awarded. And jurors told me uh, later, they didn't put the 110 pellets in his leg, but we wanted him to win that case. And the most magnificent thing of all about that was George and I were leaving the courthouse after the verdict, went out the side, down this uh, old historic small courthouse, down the steps, and outside was a large oak tree. And he looked up in the tree and started to cry. And I said, George, what is it? And he said, Mr. Kennard, they used to hang men like me in this tree. This is a great, great day. Thank you. Whoa. Well, obviously, I've never forgotten that. And there's so many lessons from that. <clears throat> you can overcome bias. Uh, Keep your case as simple as possible and, you know, represent the truth and, and right. And, and hopefully you'll come out. Okay. But those odds were really huge. <laughs> and it's what a thrill to win that. That's really, a, yeah. An incredible story. And I, I take it part of the subtext of the case was that the, the doctors at the first hospital didn't treat him. Uh, also because he was a black man and he wasn't provided kind of even normal level of health care there. They just let the leg uh, 
become gangrenous and die before doing anything. Is that, do, is that, did that come through in the trial that that was kind of the subtext of why they didn't treat him? You could, they, the doctors couldn't sense that from the doctors, but you could from one of the lawyers, this sort of uh, disdain and uh, a lot of nerve to file this case. You could feel that and sense it. And so that helped poison the other side. Uh, but yeah, there, there was some of that. And no doubt, I mean, if that had been, you know, the mayor of the town, he would have gotten a lot better treatment. We all know that. Did you take, were there personal attacks against you or, or uh, comments in the community for agreeing to take on that case and, and um, try it in, in that particular county? No, actually, nobody said anything. I think, A, nobody ever heard of me. And B, most people didn't even know that case was going to be tried. How would it be to try a case in a county like that today? In a county like that? Yeah, is it is it a lot? Uh, has the uh, culture improved a lot, or is it still really challenging to try cases in rural Tennessee? There are still people that are biased and prejudiced against anybody who's not like them. I mean, they still are. And it's true in Tennessee, rural areas. I see some things in rural areas, hear some things when I'm going around. Bias is real. Prejudice is real. So it still exists. And these sorts of things still have to be dealt with. But but that case illustrates that bias and prejudice are on the surface. On the surface. And if, you can, if you've got a good case, and you're doing a good job for your client, I don't care who they are, Muslim, whatever, I don't care. They can win because I truly believe Americans deep down want to do the right thing in our justice system. I really believe that. So it can be overcome, but those things are still out there. So I want to make sure we don't give short shrift to, to one of your cases that you've had many terrific verdicts, but there's one particular case that made you kind of a, a household name at a national level, brought you national recognition. It was a huge verdict, and a fascinating case where you represented the sports broadcaster, Aaron Andrews, in a case against a hotel where they gave out her room information to a stalker. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about the, the facts of that case, how you got involved in it and then how did you put that together and get such an incredible result because i remember when i first heard about it i thought to myself well i mean she didn't get seriously physically injured as a result of that as i i recall right there's no you know so uh turning that set of facts into the it was a 55 million dollar verdict that's right it was all emotional no physical Tell us about that. And I heard you speak on it once where you, I think, gave part of, it might have been your, your closing, where you I, you told the story of it um, from a perspective that really brought home the uh, force of it. But just tell us a little bit more about that, that case. Erin Andrews, as everyone knows, is a beautiful woman. By the way, she's as pretty on the inside as she is on the out. And... She was going to call a football game in Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt. And there was a stalker, an insurance man who traveled around the country following her. And he wanted to get video of her without any clothes on and was working very hard at it and ended up being very successful at it. But he stalked her at two other hotels and he ended up uh, knowing the night she would probably be in Nashville to call that game the next Saturday morning, Saturday. And he called Marriott International and asked to be in the room next to Aaron Andrews. And the person he talked to said, sure. And Marriott International denies ever sending that request to the local Marriott. But in any event, he ends up with a room next to Aaron Andrews. Friday afternoon, he hears her come into the room next to him, and they're at the end of the hall in an alcove. 
which is part of our claim. You, you don't put Aaron Andrews in an alcove by herself. Here's a come in. Here's a leave. He goes out in the hall, unscrews with his fingers the peephole, takes the peephole device to his room, drills it out with the drill he had fashioned, makes the peephole a hollow tube, puts it back in her door so she wouldn't notice it was gone. But now it's a hollow tube, and you can look right through it. He goes back in his room and waits. She comes back, he hears her, she gets in the shower, he goes out in the hall, puts his phone camera up to the hole, and then got lucky and captured about four minutes of her in her room without clothes on. Tries to sell that video to TMZ, and they said, no way. Nobody bought it. So he put it on the internet for free and said who it was. And Aaron found out when a friend called her 16 million hits later, Aaron didn't even know about it. A friend calls her on the phone and says, did you know you're on the internet without any clothes on? And she completely freaked out. Our first family witness was her dad who said, she called me immediately. We talk every day. He said, she called me immediately and was screaming and crying. I thought she'd been on a car wreck and just saying my career's over, my life is ruined, et cetera, et cetera. So severe emotional distress, and those are, are the facts. The challenge uh, was A, proving damages, but B, how to get the case attention away from Aaron and onto the jury, how to make the jury empathize with this, because you have a star sitting there at the council table who looks fabulous. And what is wrong with her? And what's the big deal here? Why should I care about this? I'm not going to, nobody's going to photograph me. Nobody cares about me. So the defense was smart enough to realize that we don't want Aaron's team to argue she could have been raped or murdered because that then makes it personal to the jury. So they filed a motion and believe it or not, the judge made a ruling you may never, ever say Aaron Andrews could have been raped or murdered or beaten or anything like that. You may not say it. Now, I said, actually said it. It's on the record. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was so mad. It seems to fly in the face of tort law foreseeability principles, but there yeah, you go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I struggled for two weeks how to overcome this problem. And I came up with a plan. And here's what happened. So I called the uh, hotel manager. I think he was our first witness. I called him. Nobody ever asked him this kind of question at the deposition uh, that he gave. And I said, let me give you a hypothetical. Let's go back to the time when uh, this event happened. Let's say a lady came into your hotel at seven o'clock at night. Let's just call her Sally Johnson. Okay. And he said, sure. She comes in, she gets the room. It happens to be the same room that Aaron Andrews was in. You, you all put her back there in room 1061, whatever it is. And it's snowing outside and uh, people are canceling. And the hotel is, has 20% occupancy or so. Do you ever have a night like that? He said, oh yeah, more than we like to think. I said, okay. So you get the picture. It's a cold night in Nashville. And about 10 o'clock at night, a man walks into the hotel and asks you, a receptionist, is Sally Johnson here? And she says, yes. And your receptionist would have told him yes back in those days, wouldn't they? Yes. And if he said, well, I'd like to be in the room next to her, tell the jury what your receptionist would have done. And he said, well, we try to always accommodate every guest request and we would have put her, him in the room next to her. And the jury's looking like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And I said, that's all. And so I believe we successfully achieved what we wanted to, which was make the jury think 
good God, that could be my wife. It could be my daughter. That's ridiculous. So it was all about the emotional damage, no economic claim at all. And there were 16 million hits. It was proven. Bruce Brolette tried that case with me and Bruce had a computer expert who figured out there were 16 million hits and he testified. He said, all I can tell you is there have been 16 million hits. I know that. I cannot tell you how many fraternity boys were sitting around another guy's computer when they were watching together. You know, and we asked, I forget, we asked for five, excuse me, five, five dollars a hit or something. And, and that case actually, didn't it change the way hotels, uh, what, what their practices are? Because they're pretty fastidious now about not disclosing information about guests, their rooms, anything. I, I've found that anyway. And I just always assumed that that might tie back to your verdict. Do you think it has? It is the case that caused all that. It is in their hotel magazines that, uh, say you must, you must never call out the room number to the customer when they're checking in, write it on something, give it to them. I think that's pretty traditional at your, you know, at the majority of hotels now, they won't call that out. They will not, at least the, the clear standard is do not ever put someone in a room next to a guest without clearing it with that guest first. And you can't even tell somebody. Most hotels, if you call and say, hey, it's been getting at this uh, hotel. I'm sorry, we can't tell you anything like that. I don't know. And and so she, and that's, that's what she wanted to do. That was her goal. They offered her a million dollars finally, you know, before trial. She said, Randy, it's no longer about the money. Forget it. So she made her point and uh, bravo for her, bravo for her. And that you are ever so lucky to represent somebody like that. Oh my goodness. What, a, what an honor it was. Yeah. It's really a great uh, result. And I, I mean, I don't obviously have never met her, but she seems like a, a wonderful person and deserving of that. Uh, really? Justice. really so. is. And she, she's come through this really well, obviously does a great job. And by the way, knows more football than the guys in the booth. <laughs> I bet. So we're coming up toward our hour. I know uh, you've got another commitment now, but just kind of takeaways for listeners who look at a guy like you and the career you've had and uh, amazing success in cases uh, like that and think, how do I, how do I get there? How do I... Uh, become the kind of trial lawyer that Randy Kennard is? What, what kind of uh, advice would you give? Are there books or the things that you would recommend that they look at, do? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I appreciate your kind comments, Ben. Uh, I, I'd say tenacity, observe the KISS rule, keep it simple as possible, keep your case as tight as possible, go as fast as possible, this age is different. It's fast moving. Jurors don't want to waste their time. Keep your cross-examination short. I don't even, 90% of the time, I do not depose the other side's experts. And there are reasons for that. One, it doesn't give the other side a dress rehearsal for who's better, right? You know, who's, who's the better witness here? They'll declare two or three of the same type usually. And they want to dress rehearsal and they'll put their straw man up first to see what it is you have to ask. Then you show it all and they prepare the next guy. Also not taking a discovery deposition of an expert. Uh, when they come to trial, they ask their lawyers, what's he going to ask me? And they have to say, I have no clue. That switches the anxiety way over to that expert. And you can always find something to ask if the expert needs to be crossed, you can find something that is not, uh, oh, say it's a med-mal med case, it's something not about medicine, something factual, where he's made a mistake in direct. Look for that weakness and uh, then hone in on that. That's kind of uh, 
some main things. Just be tenacious and uh, let the truth guide you. Be be honest with the jury in every way, even when it, it hurts, it stinks. Honesty with them is just the best way to go. They'll they'll understand it. They know when people are not being truthful with them. And uh, I, I, maybe I, that's a good summary right there, Ben. It's a great summary. Thanks so much for joining us, Randy. We really, I really appreciate it. I'd love to have you back. Uh, I think the, this last point about cross-examination, we could do a whole nother uh, show on just that alone. So, But thanks again. If folks uh, want to reach out and find you, how do they, how do they locate you? Oh, well, I guess you could Google me and get my contact information. Canard, K-I-N-N-A-R-D, Randy Canard. Uh, my email is rcanard, K-I-N-N-A-R-D, at canardlaw.com. Happy to talk to anybody anytime. Thanks again. Ben, what a great uh, day. Thank you for the interview. Thank you for the opportunity of being with you. And I look forward to seeing you in New York City this summer. I hear we're going on a meeting up there. Likewise. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.